Hebrews chapter 7, we want to begin uh, at this week and then continue a little study more of Melchizedek. Who is he? Uh, what did he represent? Or what was the point of his life and his, his ministry and his recognition? And the main point here is in the book of Hebrews for the Jewish Christians to be convinced to not turn back to Judaism, the Levitical system, but that Abraham himself submitted to the order of the Melchizedek priesthood in a sense, tied to him. We'll see more of that. And to see that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, and thus to see that Christ is superior to Melchizedek. Finally, we'll see that too, or see that next time with our brother Randy. Next week, maybe just touch a little bit. So you want to turn to Hebrews chapter... Seven and, and just to begin, instead of ch- uh, verse 1, which we're really looking at 1 through 10, we're going to go back to chapter 6 and verse um, 17, Hebrews six seventeen, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor in the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. So now we're already seeing an idea of a priesthood, the sanctuary. See this? It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf, our high priest. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it was mentioned by Todd last week at the end of his passage. Now, chapter 7, verse 1, it continues. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the most God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth or the tithe through Abraham, because when Melchizedek made Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Amazing. Isn't that passage amazing? From the Holy Spirit. And that's why we want to ask, why? It should have been surprising to the Jews in reading Genesis. What is this Melchizedek about? What does it matter that this comes into the story? And so the Holy Spirit was foreseeing and giving us foreknowledge of a coming purpose to the concept and the character of this Melchizedek. So it's mentioned at least three times in the Bible. If you go back to Genesis and read the short account beginning with Genesis 14... And verse 17, it tells us, after Abram, you know the story, the five kings and the slaughter, risking Lot, 
After Abram returned from defeating Kerdoloma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, first mentioned, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now remember that bread and wine just from a little later. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It wasn't demanded of him. He gave it freely. Psalm 110, you know the passage, and David speaks about, this is a messianic psalm, and David is speaking about the character of the Messiah. He said in Psalm 110, uh, 1, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then verse 4 of Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what you're seeing is, in Genesis, it's a premonition of this character called Melchizedek. It's a, a seed form. Who is he? Why is he brought up? David brings up through the Holy Spirit that he's now aligned with and connected to the Messiah, the one to come. So you want to remember that. This is not about Melchizedek. The important thing is the Messiah. And so, he telling him, you'll be like a priest. And so Melchizedek is still seen as the concept of Melchizedek's priesthood still um, alive and ongoing in a sense spiritually. And this is where some confusion can happen with these passages, so we'll see. And then, of course, in Hebrews, now we see a, a richer explanation of who Melchizedek was, how he was a type of Christ, how he was superior to Abraham. We find out Hebrews like tells us all these beautiful details. And then there's even another instance of an indirect evidence of Melchizedek, although it's not stated, and it's by Jesus himself, which I don't know if anyone's going to look at that. I don't mean to bring it, bring it up. You'll mention again if you do. In Matthew, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Remember when he talks to the Pharisees? It's um, in, in chapter, what is it that he mentions that? 24 or 4. And he says that uh, he, asked the, he asked the Pharisees, who, who is David saying this man is? And they said, he's, who is the Messiah? He said, son of David. He goes, well, if he's the son of David, why does David, by the Holy Spirit, call him Lord? And guess what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I am the son of... I am the Christ. I am the Lord of Psalm 110. I am the one who Melchizedek is in reference to. So there's an indirect reference to Melchizedek, so to, so to speak. Alright, so we see those passages and how they link up here in the book of Hebrews. The superiority and quite an amazing account. So there's at least four reasons why Abraham... Uh, I won't say he was inferior. Why Melchizedek was superior to the Aaronic the priesthood, the Levitical order, is what we might say. Superior to Abraham in a, in a sense of receiving and, and giving a blessing to Abraham. Melchizedek is called two things, a king of righteousness and a king of peace. And righteousness refers to a priesthood and, and uh, peace can refer to the Messiah. Many people say I was referring to the Messiah. Who was Melchizedek? Some think he was a, a, a pagan priest who did not know 
uh, the true God. Of course, it says here he's a, he's a priest of the Most High God. His name, Zedek, some would argue and say, comes from a pagan king worship. Um, and, and, but others believe and hold that the, true, uh, the truth of God's, we would call it the gospel sort of, came through Noah, right after the flood, and Noah was on dry land again, and through his sons and his progeny, that they handed down the true faith, which somewhere along the line, Melchizedek was taught this truth about the Most High God. So Melchizedek, in any sense, is a representation of a, of a, of a priest before God, the Most High God, and Abraham sees him as such. And he's a king of peace, which is, of course, Salem or Shalom or, or Jerusalem, which is this is before, the, before Jerusalem, before David even, a thousand years later, when David took over and, and captured Jerusalem. So this is the king of, of Salem. Um, which, Psalm 85.10 says that righteousness and peace shall kiss together. And it's a reference to maybe the end, the end times. Faithfulness will come, righteousness and peace will kiss. And Jesus is called in nine, Isaiah 9 verse 6, he's called the Prince of Peace. And it's interesting that when we think of peace, we think of personal inward peace. But the root of the word actually here and, and refers to lack of war. And that's nice to know that in heaven. If you read the internet, you look at any news today, you see this, you know, China's building this island of war. Oh, it's just an island. We're going to, nothing's happened. Don't look over there. The runway missiles and rushes like super tanks and always the threat of war. But the Prince of Peace means there'll be no war, no more war. And this was represented in Melchizedek as well. Now, he's thought to be, and I was taught this, and you probably were too, were you ever taught that Melchizedek was Christ in appearance, that Christ is Melchizedek, that we call it a theophany, right? Or a Christophany, Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And I was taught too that Melchizedek was Christ. It was Because look, look at the details it says, you know, he is without father or mother, without genealogy. It's very fascinating to think that. He's without days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. Well, he's made like the Son of God or a Son of God. And he's a priest forever. So I was taught dispensationalism and this, you know, that type of thinking, that this was Jesus in the Old Testament. There's, um, I have a couple of notes here about some arguments supposedly for this. Again, I just mentioned a few of them, but just to show you. Um, it said hey, that Melchizedek greeted Abraham with bread and wine in Genesis. You know what that would have taken that to mean, right? Jesus at the Last Supper, bread and wine. Because they didn't drink bread and wine before that. Yeah, right. So he, he was, yeah, right. It never happened. Um, so these would become the symbols of Jesus' Passover, his body and blood. Jesus... Uh, Melchizedek addressed God as possessor of heaven and earth. Two thousand years later, Jesus addressed the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, which would happen commonly, I'm sure. Mm. Secondly, um, in, in, uh, David said to, in Psalm 110, sit at my right hand, when Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father. See, their argument. Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn you are priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's the same Lord who spoke, it's forever. Uh, next, the writer points out that Jesus has become a high priest forever. Same thing I just said. In Hebrews 7, uh, the attributes and qualities of God's high priest of old. He was king of Salem, king of righteousness, and king of peace. 
and this would not refer to any human, that he was called the king of righteousness, that no human, this is our argument, all have sinned and fallen short of God, only a divine being could appropriately bear this awesome title. The scripture pitches Melchizedek as one who is a king as well as a priest, and these two offices were in Christ. But, if you read old commentary, any commentary, you find out that this was fairly common in the days of Abraham, that men had title of king and priest. It was not as rare as, as someone might think. Melchizedek is called king of priests, which no fallible human being, this is the argument, no human being knows the weight of peace, and Romans uh, 3.10 says, and apply to such a man, a, a title to any human would again be blasphemous, because Jesus himself is the prince of peace. Uh, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but like the Son of God, his priesthood never ceased. Only a priest who could fit these qualifications is the pre-existent word Jesus. He's without father and mother means that Melchizedek's family were omitted uh, from the account. He had no physical human parents. He has no end of beginning or end of life. This would be Jesus. And made like the Son of God or having the appearance of a son of the Son of God. He was the Son of God because he was not yet actuality the Son of God until he was begotten by the Father through the agency of the Holy Spirit. In other words, at his birth. So those are some of the arguments. Some would appear appealing at first. Until you consider that if you look at the, the, the context and these things of history that these were all fairly common things and they're also saying things the argument for Jesus being Melchizedek is an argument they call like from silence it doesn't tell us this they're assuming this what, what, it, what it doesn't tell us is something we should really look at it's not telling us that for a reason or because it's not it's either not important or it's to show something else um, in Psalm 110 I just told you that if you read Psalm 110 and then in Matthew 22 verse 44 when Jesus was making a contrast to himself he says why does David by the Holy Spirit call him Lord if he is his son and of course Jesus knows this is a messianic psalm Psalm 110 so he's saying I am that Messiah it's not about Melchizedek it's who Melchizedek was pointing to Melchizedek a type of Christ and another great piece of evidence I thought which was mentioned I, I thought of you might know is why this could not why Melchizedek cannot be a Christophany or a, a theophany is because every time in the Old Testament that we see a theophany where God would appear either as an angel of the Lord or would send a messenger as an angel whoever that might be what, how long did they last? how long were they in their mission? very short period of time but this Melchizedek from what we read was a literal king and he lived on the earth and he lived for a long period at least a period of time long enough where he had a, he was king of a city Tony? I was thinking too there's almost always a cosmic event in the sky that's true. to be seen that's true that's possible that's a connection we could we could take from that but that he was a literal king whereas the angel of the Lord might, would, he would come he would like you say there would be a, a specific mission a specific period of time even, even Gabriel who was very busy in the Gospels, did not stay long in one place. You know, he would appear to Mary and others, and then he would go on to his his uh, back to heaven or whatever it is the Lord would have him to do. So, anyways, I just thought I'd bring that up if you had heard that 
Jesus uh, was Melchizedek. So, we want to see then some of the um, some of the reasons why the by the the order of Melchizedek is greater than the order of the Levitical system leading up to, of course, Christ and how he's a high priest forever. It tells us in verse three then. Um, that he says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now this, in the days of, the, of Genesis, it's funny how the writer takes something which would appear, this should be a negative. Do you know why? Well, why is this actually something, to have no genealogy, to have no father or mother listed, this is a negative, this is not a good thing. Right? So the writer is turning it into a good thing. Why would it not be something good in the eyes of Genesis or to the Jews of the days of Jesus? As far as the priesthood goes. Yeah, but genealogy was extremely important. Exactly. You could be found, I mean, Ezra had something to say about that, right? Exactly. If wasn't listed in the book of genealogies, you were cut off from the temple service. Exactly. So this is, not to, this is something which is telling us that it's a distinction which, rather than being a negative, is a positive. Uh, the pedigree of the priest, like Pat just said, the high priest and all priests had to prove their genealogy or they would be excluded. How about in the book of Genesis, the genealogy of who was their fathers and the tribes and, and this. So you would see the importance. To be a priest, one's father needed to be a descendant not only of Levi, but of the priestly family of Aaron within that tribe. And after the exile, after the, the Babylonian exile, how did they get the priests together? They had to find lineages. They had to make sure you were of the order, the well, bloodline. Also, maybe it was sort of setting the stage for Christ's genealogy being of the tribe of Judah and not Levi. Exactly. That's what it, it's going to get to that. It's saying that, he, that, that Melchizedek is not of the lineage of Levi or, or Abraham. I'm sorry. Good. Um, it, it, you might say this, but is it possible that this Melchizedek um, is Gentile and that just like Rahab or you know um, uh, Ruth like there's there's a lineage that includes the Gentiles right good is point that, that was the promise right to Abraham that he was one who was given the promises and one of the great promises was that the Gentiles and he and wasn't Abraham uh, a Gentile his father was a pagan good Ken because it says in here, without beginning of days or end of life, how does this fit in with less in the beginning when it says, let us make man in our image? Right. So we have to find out what does that mean. Without what's, Why is it stated that he has no beginning of days or life? Is it literally true? Is no. Is it part of the us? Well, well what it, the point it's trying to make here that he has no beginning of days or end of life is not to say that he, he was magic and supernatural as much as to say that's not important. What's important is not his lineage, not, not his listing of his father and mother. What's important is not the, the Levite line, the Aaronic line. Christ is superior to this line. Like, like Tony was just saying about Judah, no king came out of Judah. I mean, I mean not king, uh, priest came out of Judah. It was the king, kingly line. So the point of him having, we'll get to that though a little bit though to explain it a little better. But I believe, and what seems to be taught from another commentary seem to agree is, the reasons why these things are not listed is not because it makes it, See, the, the, that's one of the main points I want to make today. It, the point here is not to make Jesus fit the Melchizedek mold. See what I'm saying? Melchizedek is inferior to Christ. 
We're, we're seeing Melchizedek representing a type of Christ. So his lineage, his family line, is, is, means little to us as believers because we're seeing Christ as the, the point is towards him. Gary? Yeah. Contrasted with chapters 10 and 11 where you get all of the, the lineages, the dates that they were born, when they died, when they had a child, right. how long they lived after they had their first child. When you come to this uh, uh, prolific figure, Melchizedek, he just comes on the scene out of nowhere. Right. There's no recorded yeah. lineage yeah. or recorded data. Yeah. So yeah. in that sense, he, he becomes a right. beautiful type for what exactly. the book of Hebrews says is the person of Jesus. Right. And, and that's the amazing thing. You really appreciate the wisdom of God and especially the Holy Spirit and in, in the in the writing of Scripture is the holy the reason why Melchizedek's even brought up and existed was like for this reason he came to be the predecessor of a type of Christ that's the point of his life David then realized this through the Holy Spirit in Psalm one ten writing it saying you know the, you know how the Old Testament is progressively illuminating things so Melchizedek it's a wonder the Jews didn't say in that day and all the way up to the time of Christ. Who, what was the point of this Melchizedek? It doesn't make sense. David gave them a clue in Psalm 110 and said this Messiah is somehow like Melchizedek, right? And the Jews said, he's a, he's a priest. The Messiah will be a priest. Now, Data wouldn't have known what that would mean, but we're seeing it in fruition in chapter, 11, uh, chapter 7 and further. This Messiah is a priest. They were given a big clue, but they missed it. Randy? I think it's very important that he appears before the, the law, before the priest. Exactly. And, that, and that's to give evidence not of Melchizedek being superior, but Christ, who was before that time. So, again, you're taking from Melchizedek and saying, aha, you know, the aha moment should be this is about this Messiah. This is what's important. Thank you, Melchizedek. Thank you for your role. I was thinking, too, if. Um, I think I'm correct in, in remembering that um, it said that David's kingdom will last forever, or his seat will, right. something like that. And in the in the literal sense, of course, it did not. That's right. But in the spiritual sense, it does. That's right. That's right. It was it was temporarily ended. It appeared <coughs> through lineage, and but they still found lineage later on when it's the kingly line was taken again. But it always existed spiritually, and that's the point. That's why it says he remains a priest forever, right? doesn't mean that it's about Melchizedek as his the institution of the priesthood and this coming priesthood of Christ would remain and abide forever, which, which it has. And again, to be someone without beginning of days or life uh, and having no parent or lineage would be an insult because this was used of orphans. Orphans had no mother or father, no lineage. They were looked down upon, illegitimate children that was not recorded, of their families, or those who were not recorded to have any mother or father and no lineage, were seen as people from unimportant families. You were seen to be someone who was lesser than. You were inferior on the on the scale of status and and humanity. Which I wonder if there's. We probably go too far to connect it with our Lord Jesus Christ to say that he was born with animals and in a manger and of no seeming descent of Joseph's, uh, who appeared, seemed to be his father. 
but still of the line of David, right? The Bible tells us still that Joseph was of the line of David, although he's not was Jesus' earthly father, but Mary was of the line of David as well. So physically, there's still a connection. So these features made him like a son of God in that he re- the priesthood remains forever coming through uh, Christ. So it wasn't dependent on any human pedigree, but a picture that God himself used in Psalm 110. Uh, so we look now, let's look at the first reason why uh, that Melchizedek was greater than the Aaronic priesthood and, and greater than Abraham in a sense. It says in verse 4 that just how, thick he, how great he was, even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. And in the little translation would say something like, look who gave him a tenth of the plunder, even Abraham, the patriarch. So how great Abraham was, and he gave a a tithe, uh, a tenth of the plunder. Now, this you have to understand, to find out a little bit more of the context and the history, you see how important these things really were to drive home the point. Uh, the best spoils literally meant top of the heap. And that's what tithes are, aren't they? First reach, top of the heap, the best. That's why Malachi, book of Malachi, the Jews were so wrong in that they gave God the crippled animals and the lame and all these things. They didn't give them the top of the heap. We're to give God the top of the heap. Very convicting doing a study, by the way, right? Top of the heap of our time. Wow. Top of the heap of our thoughts. Top of the heap of our giving. Not just financially, but our, our life. Top of God requires commands and has a right to demand. Top of the heap from us. And no less. So Abraham gave him the top of the spoils. And this would, when they would have a battle, and again, this is before the law, before the tithing of the law of Moses, that they would give the top of the heap to the gods, in a sense. And it was an obligation, it says, to pay tithes to important religious functionaries. So it was an obligation of those who, re- who had received a spoils of war or, or tithed the important religious functionaries, which would be Melchizedek. And the reason why the tithes were given at that time, it would appear is they were given as a thanksgiving to the gods for victory. A thanksgiving to the gods. And a tenth, a tenth of the spoil was taken. So if we look at the history a little bit, and the chapter 5 gives us a little break uh, from, Abraham, from Melchizedek, but explains to us a little history of the Levitical priesthood in verse, uh, sorry, verse 5, chapter 7. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. That's interesting. What it's only telling us is in Leviticus 21 and in Numbers 18 that the priests themselves were subjected to their lineage. In other words, they weren't priests because there was any inherent greatness in them. They were born that way, right? Melchizedek wasn't born that way. I mean, he was born Melchizedek. He wasn't born into any lineage that made him important or limited his importance. The Levites were limited. See what he's trying to say? They're actually limited in their priesthood because they weren't. there was no goodness in them that made them priests. There was no superior spiritual status which made them priests. It's only because it was from the law. In other words, the Levites were actually brothers of the men that they were tithing. They were not superior to them in any way. There was no inherent superiority. The Israelites paid tithes to Levitical priests and then the priests were commanded to tithe. 
Right? Were you going to say something, Gary? You had your hand up? Yeah, well, you're on the subject of tithing. I, I've had uh, an individual try to use this text with me to say that giving 10% of your income is mandatory for <laughs> Christian in the New Testament. And he turned to Hebrews chapter 7 to try to prove this, that Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek before the law. Right. So people who utilize the... The, the
up to someone superior than him. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the superior blesses the inferior. Amen. And that's, of course, the bigger point. Amen. And then, of course, ultimately, Melchizedek is inferior to the Messiah, mm-hmm. who is the greatest of all and receives worship, receives worship uh, and forgives sins so that the, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And the people said, who is this? That claims to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And I always want to fight the people that deny the deity of Christ. I want to say, well, that's when Jesus should have said, Oh, did I say I forgave sins? I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're right. Only God. I'm, I'm not who I claim to be. Forgive me. No, they said, Who is this that forgives sins? Only God. And Jesus said, That's right. Only God can forgive sins. Isn't that true? Somebody? Gary? This is another point, too, that some have utilized... Uh, Melchizedek as an example of how God can save people outside of the Judeo-Christian heritage to a liberal point where you know people who are Muslims, who are Hindus, Buddhists, and so on, right. that they are like what Melchizedek was to, you could say, the Jewish lineage is what they would be to Christianity outside right. of the... Right. The peripheral of, of their sanctification. Amen. Yeah, the brotherhood of man type thing. Whereas Jesus, though, was a problem there because he himself said, no man comes to Father but by me. Mm-hmm. So it was very limited. So when people try to say, oh, are you saying that your way is the only way? I was like, yeah, well, yes. Because Jesus said that. That all, not, was that right? That's what Jesus said is true. So Melchizedek gave Abraham a blessing. And again, this wasn't just a, you know, oh, bless you, hope you have a good day. This was an official function of one who was a superior to the, like Gary said, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And, And Melchizedek took this function on himself, or had this function, obviously. He knew of it. And he blessed Abraham. It says the blessing is an official uh Announce a pronouncement coming from one properly authorized, which actually bestows something on its recipient. It is explained the blessing carries with it not only the verbal expression of goodwill, but goodwill achieving actual results. In other words, when he blessed Abraham, he wasn't saying, uh, I, I humanly as a man, bless, bless you. I say, may the God most high who you believe in follow that blessing with power on your life. Wow. And fulfill the promises that he has given you. So it was to achieve an end result. Melchizedek must have been superior to Abraham so as to bestow a blessing. Uh, his words were not just congratulatory, you know, you know, you won the battle here. But as much as a blessing given from God, Melchizedek stood between God and Abraham, right, as a priest would stand between man and God himself. We see then in verse 8, another reason of the superiority. In one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. So Melchizedek's priesthood wasn't continued in the sense that there was a succession of men, right? We don't read about after Melchizedek was his son Adoni Zedek and all these other Zedeks that came after him. But in, but it was it was it was a spiritual priesthood which David recognized as continuing in its form, in its spiritual concept. In the Levitical system, the priests were constantly dying and had to be replaced by others, right? 
which, by the way, someone pointed out that this letter might have been written before A.D. 70 because the priesthood is still seen to be regarded as in effect, which was a good point. But in this instance, Melchizedek, uh, we read of no successors, even in Hebrews it tells us. Uh, it doesn't Saying Melchizedek remained a priest doesn't mean that he never died, but that the silence of Scripture on this point furnishes the basis for the typology. The silence, I'll let that answer this can a little bit, the silence of Scripture of his genealogy isn't to say that there's some supernatural magical existence he had, but to say the silence was to show us that it implies the type applying to Christ. That it wasn't the point, that it wasn't needed to give a genealogy. But he did have a genealogy. Does anybody know where we might see a clue from that? It tells us in verse 6 what? Read verse 6 again. Look at the beginning. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Maybe he, had, he has a descent. He does have descent. But he doesn't trace it from Levi. So he does have a mother and father somewhere, Ken, like you were asking, and a genealogy. But it's not important. Because he was given, like I said, as a forerunner or a seed form of the concept of the Messiah to come. And like David said, he's a priest. God reveals to David somehow that this Lord... Adonai will be a, a priest in some way. Alright, and um, so this priesthood remains or continues and abides like Tony was saying up and through until the time uh, of Christ. So, verse 9. Yeah, uh, go ahead. Can I interrupt you first? Yes, go ahead. I'm not sure if you get this point in verse 5. Um, but this, I think, is the key point too. Do it. That Levi... The Levitical lineage was in the loins of Abraham. Right. So, in essence, the Levites are expressing their inferiority or the superiority right. of the Melchizedek priesthood in that the Levitical priests are paying through Abraham right. because they were in his loins an offering or a tithe. Yep. So, right there, I think he's setting the stage for the excellency right. of the Melchizedek priesthood over the Abrahamic, uh, over the, uh, uh, the Aaronic priesthood. Right. Amen. That's well, really important here. Right. Well, re that's, where, that's where we conclude this passage in verse 9 and 10, what Gary was just alluding to. It says, that, and this is the fourth reason or the fourth superiority of Melchizedek over the, the Levitical priesthood, as he said. Verse 9 and 10. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the... I thought that's fascinating too. Paid the tenth through Abraham because Mel, when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. What genius, right? What a genius statement to make by the Holy Spirit. Which also ties into why it's better that he doesn't have a genealogy of, of, of lineage to trace because you can look at Melchizedek as one that sought out the God or a godly man, not one born into something that had to do a job. You know what I mean? That had no, who knows where the Levites were spiritually. They right. were born into it and that was their job. That was their occupation. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, so Melchizedek was a faithful priest, not right. just because he had to do it. You know, like Eli's sons. <laughs> Eli's sons who stood at the, you know, to receive the offerings and, you know, had sex with the women and, you know, and everything else. Uh, they weren't being faithful priests. You're right. And it tells us about Jesus being a faithful high priest. Good point. So this fourth uh, superiority of Melchizedek 
is is fantastic in the Holy Spirit. This writer of Hebrews is some believe it to be Paul, but he's he's of God, obviously a genius through the Holy Spirit, is not because of his own intellect, which was used by the Spirit, but revealed to this from the Holy Spirit. Levi uh, tithed, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. So it says one is almost saying, or just to use the right word, that in a sense Levi was inferior because he was paying the tithe to Melchizedek as well. And there was an argument brought up which I thought was a, a, a an argument which someone could say, and this this would take care of that argument. This would negate this argument, like kind of the lines Gary was saying. Someone can argue and say, well, hey, since the Levitical priesthood came after Melchizedek, then it's superior to the Melchizedek priesthood. Right? Could not be argued. God did something greater into the Jewish mind. Melchizedek is negated because he came first. Now Moses comes with the law, the Levitical priesthood, Aaron as high priest. There you go. Done. Now Melchizedek is meaningless. No. Because this passage shows you the... It's argued against that and proves it wrong. Because it's saying, no, Levi, before he was even born, is inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. See that? He took away that argument by stating that. You use the same, same approach to that verse. Say, well, then that must make the law superior to the promise since the law came after the promise. That's right. Good point. That's what they think. somebody could try to argue in vain, right? Yeah. It wouldn't work. That's right. So obviously by saying that Levi was paying tithes would say Levi would be inferior then forever to the Melchizedek priesthood. Never would it ever be superior to it mm. until the coming of Christ. When the high, but the final great high priest would come. And that's why when you go back to chapter 6, it says, the hope we have enters the inner sanctuary where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Remember, Jesus enters into the sanctuary, so to speak, and becomes a high priest forever, interceding for us after the order of Melchizedek. So the priorities of the Levitical lineage are forever inferior until Christ comes and is superior, obviously, to that. Anyone want to add on to that then? Any other things about Melchizedek? Fascinating. Gary, go ahead. How far are you going to go up to Barry? That's me. That's the end for me. Verse 9 and 10. 9 and 10. Okay. And then Randy's going to take next week, which we're looking forward to. God bless him. That <laughs> it's going to... Amen. Amen. No, it's going to be great because it's going to show the superiority. Now, of, I hope I didn't take too much from what you were saying. Uh, the superiority of Christ. I'm tempted to go beyond that, beyond what I was trying to say. The only place I went a little beyond was Jesus applying Psalm 110 to himself, saying, you read about Melchizedek. I am, I am that Lord. Go ahead. So what if someone said, well, um, Levi was in the loins of Abraham, so was Jesus in the loins of Abraham through Judah. Wow. What would we say to that? Yeah. Well, they could try to argue that. But Jesus was without days, right? (laughs) He was before Abraham. Remember he said, before Abraham was, I am. I claim the deity, by the way, again. You're not 50 years old yet? And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, he longed to see my... talking about promises. He longed to see my day. Why would Abraham long to see his day? Promises. He longed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
Todd? Uh, this is just one example in the New Testament of showing the spiritual interpretation of the literalness of the Old Testament in relationship to dispensationalism that tries to literalize everything and proudly create a hermeneutic that says it's all literal. The author here is taking the spiritual application of literal lives and making a truth out of that and seeing the truth out of that. Amen. So, I mean, it just goes to show that uh, actually spiritual truths and interpretations can actually be the literal purpose of God. Right. I mean, there's always a danger. You're right. There's dangers on both sides. Literalism and figurativism. I mean, there's figurative speech is dangerous too because we see... That's why we have to try to let the Scripture speak for Scripture, interpret Scripture, because like that person who said, well, the bread and the wine. See? They use that figuratively and said, well, see, because Melchizedek had bread and wine, well, Jesus had bread and wine. There you go. But that's not... That's using... That's too free with figurative speech. But on the other hand, literalism limits things. We, we, by taking something literal which shouldn't be taken literally, we limit it. Like Eric's talking about tithing. That man was limiting the 10% saying, it's, I, put, I put a border around this and that border stays. And after that, then what, what further comes from that? You've already fenced it in. Your mind is fenced. So you can't go beyond it now because you put a fence around it. You'd be sitting by giving 12%. <laughs> right, right. Or are you trying to be proud, giving 12%? Good. So the Melchizedek priesthood has eclipsed the Aaronic priesthood. Mm-hmm. So therefore, you know, those current-day Jews and current-day Christian Zionists who are promoting the idea of rebuilding a third wow. temple, right, right. there's a lot of publicity about it, there's a lot of hype in Jerusalem among certain ones mm-hmm. especially, that this is going to happen. When I was there, I asked the question, well, who's going to be the high priest? Um, there are so many different segments, and uh, I should say, sects among right. the uh, Jews. You've got the Hasidic, you've got the Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. You know, of, of which lineage is he going to spring out of? That would be a conflict. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I, I asked them, well, who's going to be building the temple? Will the Messiah come to build it, or will will the Jews build it for the Messiah to right, come? Right. Another confliction that they sure. settled on. Right. But more importantly, is if Melchizedek is truly exemplified in Jesus now, and Jesus is the forever high priest <laughs> at the right hand of God, how can we have a Levitical system reinstituted right, with right. sacrifices and offerings right. and a temple right. that's retrogressive, not progressive. That's going backwards, not forwards. Right. We're out of that system, praise God, Brother Randy. That's why I think, like Pat spoke on quite a few months ago about no mention of the temple, but that the temple still standing. Mm. And at the end of this book, God amen the author and says, yeah, mm. destroys the temple. Yeah, absolutely. Over with. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah, well, and, and even Jesus said of that temple, they said, look how beautiful this is, Jesus. You know, all the surrounding structures of the temple complex. And what did Jesus say? Not to be cruel, but he said, you see all this? He said, there won't be one stone standing on another. And, and Gary, if you've ever seen the, the, the hill on the side where they threw some of those stones, 
They literally are not on top of each other. I mean, they're all thrown out like trash. And then Jesus didn't say, well, you know what, though? You know, in 2020, they're going to rebuild a new one. They're going to reinstitute all this. He didn't say, no, there's another another physical temp- temple coming. He's saying, this is going to be cast down. Because what, why would Jesus be glad or state in a sense of such declaration that the temple would be destroyed? Why? It's a good thing. Right? Why would he say that? Because the superior was coming and the inferior would be put aside. It's very likely that the recipients of this letter were not aware of Jesus' prophecy about the temple being destroyed either. Mm-hmm. I've thought about this quite a bit. Which is scary. <laughs> but just the idea that, you know, so the Gospels, you know, the earliest dating of the Gospels we have is with Mark probably in the 60s. And so mm-hmm. if the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the teaching that would have would have gotten around, it was probably not very well known that Jesus right. had prophesied the destruction of the temple. Otherwise, it makes no sense that that wouldn't get... I mean, it baffles me that it wouldn't be brought up somehow here by this author. Right. As either something that's going to happen or something that didn't happen. Because right. that would have been a trump card. Hey, look, the Lord Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. What are you, nuts? Or, the temple was destroyed. What are you, nuts? Mm-hmm. So... I just think they probably right. most of them didn't even know the prophecy that Jesus right. gave about the destruction of the temple. No, and but actually, the, to, as I read, we did studies on the minor prophets, and, and of course, you know, then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. The Jews were given hints and given clues. You know, the Bible was a, a a treasure book of clues, and the Jews were told in the in the minor prophets, and that's why when they came to the second temple, Zerubbabel's temple, they cried and they whined. Because the point was not to make it a superior temple. They were already given clues that this wasn't the point. Right? The temple, God was telling them in the minor prophets when they came back from the Babylonian exile, and it would confuse them, would have confused me as a Jew of the day, when he started blending this, I'm going to make Jerusalem the queen, the, the nations will come into Jerusalem, you know, like, yeah. And they're going to, you know, the children will be, you know, 100 years old and they're going to play in the streets and there's going to be no more war. They're going to beat their, you know, swords in the plowshares. And everybody's like, cool, here, right? And no. <laughs> but they didn't know that. They, they, they had clues that God was saying, this is going to go beyond this life. There's an eternity coming. I'm showing you a picture that this isn't what this was about. Like Jesus said, the, the kingdom shall be taken from you the Jews. He came first out of Israel. He said, but given to another nation producing fruit thereof. Daniel talked about amazingly the fifth kingdom. Read about it. It's Make a series on Netflix about that, right? The fifth kingdom. The, the rock cut without hands. Supernatural. That came down and crushed all those kingdoms. And it's an everlasting kingdom. It, Daniel says that that nation won't be passed on it won't go through a crushing and a rebuilding and a and crushing of an empire and a rebuilding. He said it will not be handed down. This fifth kingdom is it. There's four kingdoms. The fifth is a rock cut without hands. Not touched by men. A supernatural kingdom. What is that kingdom? Kingdom of God. The church. We are that fifth kingdom. Who have any, a, a temporary status as human beings in flesh. With, a, with an eternal nature given to us by God. We have a down payment, right? The Holy Spirit is the down payment, sealing us until the day of redemption. That's what God was trying to say. To rebuild another temple was Jesus' 
you don't get it. Because we have a high priest like the Jews had a high priest. Amen. They had a temple. We are the temple. Amen. Say it. We're priests. They had a sacrificial system. We have a sacrificial system. Another altar where Christ offered himself once and for all for the forgiveness right. of our sins. Right. They had a priest that stood daily ministering in sacrifices which could never take away sin. But Jesus we have at the right hand of God seated. Not not standing, but seated, Brother Randy. That's what he's going to tell us about next week. And, and we're a kingdom of priests, right? No, no earthly lineages matter. Right? No, no more blood. Your bloodline doesn't matter. Mine doesn't matter. Our bloodline is to... We, our pedigree, I wrote, I didn't say it. Our pedigree isn't Aaron or Levi. It's Christ. Christ is our pedigree. We're all priests. And the good news is, well, where's my dove or my cornmeal or my oxen? No. Will you offer the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving, which is acceptable and pleasing, a pleasing aroma to God. Because, like Randy said, it's not because we have to and there's a gun to our head. It's because we're willing and thankful and acknowledging His beauty that He promises. Not only will you see me now and sense me now, but you will see me in my glory. Like Jesus says, Father, I pray that they be with me where I am. Why? That they may behold my glory. That's not arrogance. Thank you, Jesus. We can see your, your glory. As Moses just got a, a taste. Let's close with a prayer. And um, Randy, would you please close us? Father, we do praise you and thank you, Lord God, for being our high priest and always interceding for us, Lord God. And so we come before your throne boldly and with confidence, Lord, uh, knowing that we're accepted, we're heard, Lord, and, and we're set free um, in you, of course, Jesus. So, Father, thank you for this teaching. Thank you, Father, for uh, how you tie all things in, mm. our hearts, minds, and souls. Lord God, use this teaching uh, to prepare our hearts for worship, Lord, and be blessed by our worship this morning, Father. And, um, may we bless you, um, grow in grace, Lord God. So thank you, Father, for all that you did in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.